welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. In this session, as promised, we'll look at the Bible as Scripture uh, with particular attention to the Gospel of John. We'll try to make the leap from a written narrative to a set of scriptures that can transform us. It may be helpful to look at the dictionary before we go further, comparing Bible and Scripture. As I mentioned in episode one, the word Bible simply means a collection of books. This might explain the publications that appear from time to time, like the Fisherman's Bible or the the Knitter's Bible, books which present a comprehensive or authoritative look at a particular subject. Scripture, on the other hand, means uh, sacred writing, a book or passage with religious significance. Without overstating the difference, it points to our task today. We're reading the Bible, but we are looking at Scripture. Uh, We're not doing an academic study of who, what, where, and when. We are looking for religious meaning. So where else do you find religious meaning? You could hit the pause button here if you wish. An important lens for this look for religious meaning is John's Gospel. Because it's so unlike the other Gospels, and because it tends to garner extra attention, it seems to be a good place to begin to look for Scripture within the pages of the Bible. One of the coming-of-age rituals for New Testament scholars is translating or writing a commentary on John. It's unique, and it's complex. You may recall from uh, two weeks ago, we talked about books and fragments that eventually become the primary Hebrew and Greek texts of the Bible. One of the most exciting aspects of biblical scholarship is the periodic discovery of new source material and the race to set this in the context of existing texts. Sort of like Christmas Day for scholars. And the greatest discovery remains a codex found at St. Catherine's Monastery in 1844 and named for its location in the Sinai Desert. Uh, This began the process of searching for still more material and the process of updating the Greek base text of the New Testament. So we had a famous discovery in the desert and a burst of scholarship that followed this discovery. One of the aspects of this scholarship was called the quest for the historical Jesus, uh, an effort to find an unvarnished picture of Jesus in his original setting. And having determined that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were earlier than John, these three Gospels became the focus of scholarly attention over the decades that followed. John was not forgotten, but simply took a back seat during this period when finding the historical Jesus was so popular. During the last century, when mainline denominations took up the social gospel, uh, more on this in the next course, um, there was an even more pronounced movement toward Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Sermon on the Mount, other ethical lessons, and particularly preaching the coming kingdom, all these reinforce the desire to work with God to reconstruct the social order in favor of a more just society. 
So when professors and preachers wanted to promote this important work, they were less likely to turn to John, considered the less practical of the group. So why should we focus on John? Uh, What are we trying to reclaim? When I did this study with live humans, I assigned each participant a chapter of John and invited them to skim the chapter in search of the simple phrase, I am. And, And here's the list they found. If you only knew the gift God has given for you and who I am, you would ask me and I would give you living water. I am the Messiah. I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. I am the true bread from heaven. I am the light of the world. I am not alone. I have with me the Father who sent me. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Then you will realize that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I tell you this now so that when it happens, you will believe I am the Messiah. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. I am the vine, and you are the branches. I am not an earthly king. What do you think this means, all these examples of I am? You could uh, pause for a moment and discuss if you wish. Maybe for the sake of contrast, we should take a quick look at Jesus found in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Here's a passage. Uh, After Jesus left the girl's home, two blind men followed along behind him, shouting, Son of David, have mercy on us. They went right into the house where he was staying, and Jesus asked them, Do you believe I can make you see? Yes, Lord, they told him. We do. Then he touched their eyes and said, Because of your faith, it will happen. And suddenly they could see. Jesus sternly warned them, Don't tell anyone about this. But instead, they spread his fame all over the region. That was from Matthew chapter 9. So what's going on here? Is this the same Jesus? Matthew reminds us that Jesus' fame spread not because he was busy telling people he was the light of the world, but because of the power of his deeds. The people ignored his warning to tell no one, and the news spread as far as possible. It seems like two versions of the same person until you remember that all of us tend to have different roles in different situations and and even different identities for different groups of people. Perhaps each of the evangelists, the traditional name for the four gospel writers, just had a different experience of Jesus. But what do you think? Perhaps take a, a moment to pause. As we explore the contrast between John and the other three, we need to consider three things, uh, time, context, and theology. To begin with time, we must recall that John was written last. It would reflect, more than the others, the things happening at the end of the century. We know that there was some persecution, and we know that it became increasingly difficult for Christians of Jewish origin to remain within the synagogues and within the traditional Jewish community structure. And that takes us to context. 
In John's telling, Jews were fast becoming other, and John's persistent reference to the Jews is both ironic and telling. It's ironic because Jesus and all his disciples, as well as all his critics, were Jews. It's telling because John, writing around 90 AD or CE, no longer saw himself fully within the Jewish context. He was becoming a Christian. So we've looked at time and context. Now we can begin to look at theology. And we can return to I am. It doesn't come through in the English translation, but I am is one of the most heavily freighted phrases in Scripture. In Greek understanding, there are two distinct states that we need to be aware of, becoming and being. According to this worldview, we are all in a state of becoming, whether it's growth, maturity, decline, or death. Even in death, we are becoming something as we become energy for further growth. Being, on the other hand, is the ideal and unchanging form in Greek thought. There are the things that are transitory, and there are the things that eternally are. The key is the Greek phrase, ego eimi, meaning I am. Listen to John chapter 8. The people said, You aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you have seen Abraham? Jesus answered, The truth is, I existed before Abraham was even born. At that point, they picked up stones to kill him. But Jesus hid himself from them and left the temple. Now, the translators have cleaned up the Greek a little, Uh, Jesus actually said something like, Before Abraham came or came to be, I am. It relates us back to John's famous prologue uh, in the first chapter uh, and the unmistakable understanding that in this context, Jesus is preexistent with the Father. And then we get this from chapter 11. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die like everyone else, will live again. They are given eternal life for believing in me and will never perish. So here's a question for discussion. Are you being or becoming? Perhaps you could look at it from a different angle. Is society more concerned with being or becoming? You can pause here if you wish. Part of the focus on being in John is related to his abiding interest in the state of the reader's soul. The Gospel of John is about spiritual transformation, most often on an individual level. John mentions the kingdom of God, as you'll hear in the next passage, but not in the context of God's government on earth, but rather a place to gain your salvation. Here's a passage from John chapter 3. Jesus replied, The truth is, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives new life from heaven. So don't be surprised at my statement that you must be born again. John's 
preoccupation with being born again into eternity is part of this desire to escape the regular constraints of time and space and enter God's eternity. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Only John makes eternal life front-page news in his story of Jesus. So, what is eternal life? This might be a moment to pause the tape. Let's read on, then, and look for some context in this question of eternal life. This is a reading from John chapter 6. I assure you, anyone who believes in me already has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. However, the bread from heaven gives eternal life to everyone who eats it. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, offered so the world may live. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Eternal life, then, is predicated on a new bond, a union between God and humanity through Jesus. If we partake of the bread of heaven, we gain eternal life. It is the new manna that renews the link to God through the body and blood of Jesus. In union, we become part of God by joining the Son. And all of this happens in the context of love. From John 15, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey me, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father and remain in his love. I have told you this so that you may be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. I command you to love each other in the same way that I love you. The, the most important thing to note here is that all this talk of eating his flesh would be the worst kind of idolatry were it not for John's understanding that Jesus is God. Do you think this part of John is helpful to understanding how we can relate to God in Jesus? Perhaps take a moment to consider. The Bible is scripture whenever we're encouraged to enter the text and be transformed. To be clear, you can have significant doubts about John's gospel and the various claims contained therein and remain a faithful follower of the way. It is possible to ignore John and his kin, St. Paul, focus on the first three gospels and have a comprehensive look at God's Son. What we lose, however, when we do this is a deeper look at the meaning of the Lord's Supper, the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity, and many more aspects of Christian theology. When the Bible touches on belief, we allow the Spirit to move through the pages and into our lives. Only then are we reading Scripture. It can happen in John, in Exodus, in Job, and even in Leviticus. But it seems to me that in John, this movement is most present, there in plain sight. 
This concludes, then, our look at the Bible, and I hope you've found it interesting and meaningful. Uh, Next time, we will move to the history of the Christian church. Um, And as a historian uh, in my heart, I'm most excited about it, and I look forward to seeing you then.